uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. You're going through the book of Acts, aren't you? Yeah. Enjoying it immensely, a wonderfully invigorating book. So let me read from chapter 2 then, verse 42. Speaking of the believers, both uh, those who were followers of Jesus when he was alive and those who've just joined them on the day of Pentecost, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those <clears throat> who were being saved. All familiar things, I guess, for us. I'm uh, enjoying a thriller, a legal thriller. I like this particular author. I have a few of his books on my shelves, and I'm just reading one of them again. I'm nearing the end and looking forward to the denouement, to the ending. I remember it because I've read it about four or five times before, but I've got to the age where I can forget things, and so I can read books again as if I've never read them before, which is useful for a thriller, but we mustn't forget where the Bible finishes. One of those lovely songs, Worthy is the Lamb, seated on the throne, comes from the final book in the Bible, the final end. It's not all about the future. The book was written for the first century Christians, but it points to the future as well and finishes with these lovely words of Jesus saying, I am coming soon, and all of heaven responding, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And you, you remember in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, verse 11, Jesus disappeared from their view on the day of ascension. And that is still in their mind as the angels say to them, what are you doing hanging around here? This same Jesus who's disappeared from you will come back in the same way he's gone. So off you go. Get on with the work he's given you to do. And Pentecost has come. This is the end of Pentecost. And Luke slows down the action because he's a good writer, he's a good thriller story writer. You want to read the next page and the next page and the next page. But every now and again he slows down and sort of sums up where you are. And this is one of those cameos where he just pauses for a moment and tells us what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Because if their lives have been changed, been changed because Jesus has saved them, rescued them, delivered them, given them a new beginning, changed because the Spirit has come upon them in power and might, then what does that look like in practice? If their lives are largely unchanged, then you have to say, well, being rescued by Jesus doesn't really mean a lot then. And if their lives look just like their neighbours after the Spirit's come, then you have to say, well, what's happened then? People flocked to Jesus. Here's a conundrum which is not easy to work out. Jesus used to confront people with their sin. He spoke about sin and the need for repentance. He was straight with people, but they flocked to hear him because somehow or other he offered within that a wonderful new beginning. 
So what Acts does here, what Luke does here, is he pauses to show us what the church looks like. Well, this lovely little picture. He's wanting to give most excellent Theophilus an idea of what it's all about. We're not altogether sure who Theophilus was, but it's a sporting chance that he might be the lawyer who is going to defend Paul at his trial before Rome. And the book ends when he's in Rome awaiting that trial, so it would make chronological sense. In which case, therefore, Luke is giving him the information he needs to understand why Paul is standing before the secular powers of the day having to account for what he's done. And so he's told the story about Jesus and he's now telling the story about the church. And here's the thing he says, and this is used by very many preachers and it's right to do it as well. He gives four things that are distinctive about these people. Many people say they are the four things on which the church stands. Here they are, the devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God, which now will include both the Old Testament and the New Testament now. The New Testament has not yet been written. Luke is busily adding his own contribution to it. Paul will do his in due time. But the apostles are still speaking the same thing. They're the ones who watched and saw and listened and, and learnt and were transformed by the teaching of Jesus. They're the ones who are passing it on. So they're passing on the word of God. And these people devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. This, my friends, is not a verse a day or a verse a week. This is devotion to the word of God, not merely reading it in great chunks, good to do, but asking questions about it. Yeah. Working out what it means, discussing together the implications of it, and finding out how to put it into practice in the power of the Spirit. We don't become mature Christians by going to Bible study. We don't become mature Christians by coming to worship meetings like this. We become mature Christians by applying what we learn in Bible studies. By letting the Spirit of God we've been worshipping and adoring change our lives. They've had a change of life that re reveals a change of lifestyle. So their centre of gravity now has become focused on God. If we're not focused on the word of God, my friends, we are at the mercy of the person who shouts loudest and most persuasively. We are about to be bombarded by people who are fluent speakers, persuasive speakers who want our votes. I don't denigrate them for that. Please don't think I am. But they're persuasive. And unless you know what you believe, you can be persuaded by people who can make an argument sound convincing. We have to be deeply rooted in the word of God, now as never before. We are coming to a generation, so others say, where the church is post-biblical, doesn't know the Bible. We've sung old and new hymns this morning, and great that is, isn't it? To sing the old and new. We want the rich theology that has been given to us through the centuries and the new theology that's been written today. We want them both because we need to know what we believe and what God is doing. That's the first thing they devote themselves to. And then to fellowship, which is not a cup of coffee and a piece of cake or biscuit or something else or mince pie this time of year. Much as we enjoy those things, mind you, meals are very important. I know more than one pastor who says in his church they don't have meetings unless they eat. No eating, he says, no meeting. 
they're good occasions to get together because food loosens up the tongue, it more relaxes people, allows people to discuss things at a deeper level than just swapping information. So food is good, but that's not what fellowship's all about. Fellowship is the living of lives together. So what, what Luke is describing here is a community that is dependent on God, inclusive of others, and grateful for being saved. Fellowship means that anyone is welcome. There are no barriers to anybody in the Church of Jesus Christ. Are there? No, because God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I'm not going to explore all those things that now pop up in your head and think, what about this, that and the other? The truth of the matter is, there are no barriers and should be no barriers. Every church, hopefully, should reflect the society around us. Not on a quota basis, where you have to have such and such a percentage of this and such and such a percentage of that. I'm not talking about quotas, I'm talking about inclusivity. Jesus never turned anyone away. When his disciples wanted to push children away as being nuisance value only, Jesus says, no, 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 don't do that. They also are included in the kingdom of God. And what Luke is describing here is a church where anyone and everyone is welcome. We have to realise that this barrier between Jew and Gentile is a massive one. For Jews who have grown up with hundreds of years of a certain particular understanding. I don't quite know where they got it from, but they certainly had it by the time of Jesus. Where they really, really didn't get on with Gentiles and wanted nothing to do with them. Even though right from the very beginning, God did. But now the dam is being breached. The waters are breaking through. The doors are opening. The barriers are coming down. This church will very soon find itself with many people from the Gentile communities wanting in on it. And Luke is describing a church of inclusivity where nothing, even in our country, we have churches that are black churches and white churches. We have middle class churches and poor churches. We have churches that subtly, because of the way they emphasise certain things, exclude other people. My friends, it should not be, should it? It should not be. The church should reflect the society in which it's placed so that all people are welcome before God. They devote themselves to this fellowship, the shared lifestyle. This isn't just a meeting or two a week where you get together and everyone just holds it all in tightly and then you back off home and get on with the normal things. This is shared lifestyle. The third thing they devote themselves to is the breaking of bread. Some churches find that so important that they'll only do it once a year because they think it's so important. Others think it's so important they'll do it two or three times a week because they think it's so important. Someone I know, um, a young church leader from a church where the communion isn't one of those very, very important things. A prosperous church, a church that is thriving, really into all the things of the Spirit, energetic in its evangelism, being effective and fruitful in sharing lives, really felt they were missing out on communion. And to his lasting credit, I say, he went to someone at the other end of the theological spectrum and went to a high Anglican and said, I don't believe we're giving communion the emphasis it should have. Will you show me? what we're missing. Will you show me what communion means? I just think that must have pleased God's heart, mustn't you? 
these two men from different ends of the theological spectrum coming together and saying, we want to grow in this. Because the communion is the ground on which we stand, my friends. Where do you stand? Where do I stand? On the rock of Jesus Christ. At the foot of the cross. Nowhere else. There is no other ground on which we can stand. Not on my understanding, your understanding. Not on my progress or lack of it. We stand there together. And the communion reminds us where we stand. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That's where he became king. That's where the world changed forever. And that's why we have communion. Not something we tack on to the end of something or other. But really, really important moment. Some churches do it with pomp and circumstance. They do it with folk wearing beautiful robes and in a very organised way. Other churches do it with a kind of holy chaos. Because they want people really to enter into it. It doesn't really matter how we do it. As long as we do it in order to remind ourselves where we stand. This is the thing. This generation, as the apostles, can you imagine them? The apostles, first teaching this 25-fold bigger church. One day, 25-fold it grew. The first time they had communion together, the first time they broke bread together, can you imagine what they say? We were looking at him. And then he did this. And he said, this is my body given for you. And for them, all those moments will come back fresh and new as if he were there at that moment. It will connect with the cross and it will be a long pause. I cannot imagine how long it would have taken them to get past that point. This is really, really important. Let me encourage you, when communion happens here, really to enter into it. This is the moment that changed our lives. And to prayer. Jesus has gone back to heaven. Heaven, you remember, is God's place. And earth is our place. And Jesus now is the only one so far who is comfortable in both. That's why he could do this come go, come go over 40 days. Because he's comfortable in both. He is a man who's entirely comfortable on earth and a man who's entirely comfortable in heaven. He's a God who is entirely comfortable in heaven and he's God who is entirely comfortable on earth. He can do both. But he has gone back to heaven. He is no longer visible on earth. The Spirit has come. So how do we access heaven? If we are people where the future has already come, how do we access this? There's only one way. Prayer. Prayer gives us access to the heavenly realms. Prayer allows us to access all that heaven has and see it fulfilled on earth. Prayer is not some kind of preamble to the real business of the service. Prayer is the way in which we join with God and see God's kingdom come. God's will be done. You read through the book of Acts and you will find everybody praying. The distinguishing factor that Ananias will be told when we get to chapter 9 about a guy called Saul, whose name will soon be Paul. And as God is reminding or asking Ananias, who doesn't want to go, Ananias, and describing who he has to go to, and says, you will find him praying. And that will describe Paul for the rest of his life, a man who prayed. I don't know whether you find praying easy or hard. I suspect that you think you find it hard. I think if I were to say, put up your hands if you're a good prayer, nobody will put their hands up. 
First of all, because it looks arrogant, and secondly, because you probably don't think you are. It's one of those areas where we are, we know our frailty, don't we? We wish we could do it more. But there's only one way to learn how to pray, and that's by praying, isn't it? So praise the Lord that the Spirit is interceding for us at this moment in time before the Father, and the Son is interceding for us at this moment before the Father. Isn't that wonderful? So even when you're not actually physically praying, God is praying on your behalf. They, they have those four things. This is the community that is dependent on God. They're inclusive of others and they're grateful for being saved. Communion should be full of joy, shouldn't it? Thank you, Lord. This last week, I had to take the service for a cousin of mine. And... Um, as many of you will and many other people will, you pray for your relatives, don't you? You pray for your cousins and your aunts and your uncles and your nephews and your nieces and your great-nephews and your great-nieces and your second cousins and all those people, don't you? You pray for those people because they're part of your friendship circle. They're part of the people you care about. And then I do that too. We've got quite a large family. And to be honest, I don't pray for many by name. Now and again I do, but most it's just that, praying with all. Well, on... On the Saturday before Monday, when the service was, I discovered a, a young couple, Christian couple. They're neighbours to where my cousin was living. And they said, could they sing in the service? It was a very short service, so I said, sure, you can do that, as long as we take a hymn out, because there's not much time. It was a very short service at a crematorium. And uh, so to... Time with them on the Monday as we got there. I was there at half past one. The service was at two and about 25 to two. I'm talking to this couple and saying, what are you going to sing? And they just said, we're going to sing Amazing Grace because your cousin loved this song. He loved to hear us. He used to come to our home as much as he could. He couldn't get enough of Jesus. We are convinced he's with the Lord. I tell you, I couldn't be more joyful. That was news to me, the most wonderful news. Are you pleased to be and grateful to be a follower of Jesus, saved? Whatever else may be happening in your life. Here's another thing that Luke describes. He describes a community that challenges injustice, that acts generously, and that demonstrates real power. Everyone is filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone uh, who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Money is one of those things that separates people, that divides people. It's only money. Jesus had no problem with money. Please don't think I'm saying that. He had no problem with money. Money is just one of those amoral things. It's neither immoral nor moral. It just doesn't count. It's what you do with it that counts. To the rich young ruler who wanted to add a spiritual dimension to his otherwise successful life, Jesus challenged him to imagine a life without money. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. If there's anything I cannot do without that is my God. So the generosity of the church here demonstrates to them money is just money. It is not their God. 
They have all things in common. They don't think of it as mine and yours, they think of it as ours. This is a gift of God, whoever needs it can have it. Something my father said to me regularly, and he didn't have much money at all. He never had much money in all his life. Enough, but not a lot. He said to me, more than one occasion, I dare say to my five brothers and sisters as well, the same thing. But he said, son, if you need it and I have it, you can have it. And it was a genuine offer. They had the same sort of approach in this sort of thing. Materialism, money, gives the impression that we don't need other people. That's the tragedy of it. Money can give the impression that with it, that's all I need. Why else would people pursue money in such vigour? Those who live in wealthy communities, interestingly enough, often separate themselves from other people. There's a road we sometimes pass, or used to pass on regular routes to and fro. And along this particular stretch of a road are a number of new um, small roads that have been developed, and they're high-end houses. And there must be about six or seven of them that have gates at the end. You can't get into this little close of six or seven houses of very wealthy people. The money they have is excluding them from each other. Isn't that ironic? And we're all used to the picture of terraced houses being a place where often neighbours would look after each other, look out for each other, be in each other's houses all the time. I'm sure it's not always like that. So poverty sometimes makes people aware they need other people. Let me read you this little thing. Where one day a father of a very wealthy family took his son on a trip to the country with the express purpose of showing him how poor people live. They spend a couple of days and nights on the farm of what would be considered a very poor family. On their return from their trip, the father asked the son, How was the trip? It was great, Dad. And did you see how poor people live? The father asked. Oh, yeah, said the son. So tell me, what did you learn from the trip? The son said, Well, I saw that we have one dog and they have four. We have a pool that reaches to the middle of our garden and they have a creek that has no end. We have imported lanterns in our garden and they have the stars at night. Our patio reaches to the front yard and they have the whole horizon. We have a small piece of land to live on and they have fields that go beyond our sight. We have servants to serve us, they serve others. We buy our food, they grow theirs. We have walls around our property to protect us, they have friends to protect them. All a matter of perspective really, isn't it? And what's happening here is money now is just one of those tools with which you can do some good. Money has a purpose, and the purpose is to go around, to facilitate things. In and of itself, it's of no value at all. If you were in the Sahara Desert, thirsty and starving, and someone gave you a million pounds, it wouldn't do you much good, would it? A bottle of water would be much better. It has a purpose, and that's what they're showing. So it's a challenge to the injustice because it's usually the rich that act unjustly towards the poor, isn't it? That's what James says anyway in his letter. And they act generously towards one another and demonstrate that real power comes not through having much 
But knowing God, in the next chapter, we will read a story about someone who says to Peter and John, give me money. And Peter and John say, I haven't got any money. I've got something better than that though. Get on your feet and walk. And that's what they did. Real power. And then he describes a community that delights in one another, expresses blessing and enjoys growth. They continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. These are people who know that the time is short. I don't know when the Lord's going to come again. I'm hearing from one or two people that someone convinced he's going to come soon. Well, it's been said before, hasn't it? I've no idea. But one thing we can be sure of, we're closer now than we've ever been to the coming of the Lord. And these are people, they truly believe Jesus will come back within their lifetime. And they acted accordingly. Their lives, they knew they had only a certain amount of time before the Lord will come again. It's the coming of the Lord that really motivates people. I probably said this before, but at a, a preacher's conference, we had a number of different speakers uh, speaking about preaching and different things. And one black guy came and talked to us about black preachers. We were mostly white guys and ladies. And he said, I'm going to talk to you about black preaching because half of you guys think we just black preachers love strutting up and down the stage, shouting our heads off all the time, don't you? And we're all, you know, <coughs> nodding a little bit like that. He said, that's not the case. He said, black preaching comes out of the slave trade in the 1800s in America or earlier. Now, you're a slave. You're a slave today at the beck and call of your master who can kill you at any moment. You have no future. You possess nothing at all. You're at his beck and call. If he wants to work with you 23 hours a day, he can. If he wants to work you to death, he can. And suddenly someone tells you about Jesus and you can be saved and you are saved. But what's going to happen the next day? What's going to change in your life? Nothing. You still can have to work 23 hours a day if your master needs you to. He can still work you to death. Nothing will change. So how do you preach to that kind of community? How do the black preachers in that community, who will be slaves themselves, how do you give hope to your people? You can't say everything's going to be sweetness and light because it's not. But what you can say is, one day, one day, it isn't going to be like this. One day, it's all going to be changed. One day. That's what motivates them. And you still find that in black preaching. Very hope-filled. My friends, keep that in your mind. These are a group of people who know that Jesus is coming back. And because of that, what they do matters here and now. And that is their focus. They know one day he's coming back. And it fills our hope. So however difficult life is going to be, however hard it's going to be, and we're going to go, as we go through it, it's going to be hard in the book of Acts, isn't it? Not easy. People are going to be killed. People's lives are going to be shortened. They're going to have all sorts of opposition. But they'll never lose this. They'll never lose this hope. One day, Jesus is coming back. And many of Paul's letters will include that truth. That Fully and completely. So this is a church that delights in each other, glad to be together. They can't wait to get together. 
They express blessing. They just want to give blessing away, which is God's original intention. And no wonder that people come and want to find out what's going on. And they get the numbers. In the end, growth comes. It happens in different ways. If you were in a church in a city, the chances are growth happens more quickly. They're in a city. And the chances are in rural communities, it happens in different ways. But people will want to know when the church really enjoys one another, enjoys God, gives away what God gives, then people will come and say, what's happening here? Praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. Doing awesome things because God has given them the power to do what God wants them to do. So all it is, a little tiny cameo, that's all it is. And now Luke will be off again with the story and move rapidly through some more stories. But then he'll pause again from time to time just to show us what's happening. But the test for us, of course, as we head off this morning, is not to say, know that one, off we go, on the next one, but just to reflect and say, how much of this is true about me? How much of this is true? Where are my devotions? It's all a challenge. What do I like doing? When I was a pastor of a church, I sometimes would tease myself with the thought, I suppose, if I went down to church at half past nine, the service was at half past ten, half past nine, and put a big notice on the door saying, no service today, church suspended, would they come and bang on my door and say, what do you mean, no service today? What are you talking about? I need to get with the people of God. Would they have done that? Or would they say, oh, good, a day off. I can go down the beach. You never know, do you? Would it have been true for me? Or would I have thought like that? Where's my devotion? So as you reflect this week, my friends, let me encourage you, be glad you've been saved. Be glad you're part of this fellowship. This group of people. These are people whose lives are open to you. Who are basically saying, by being part of the same book, you need it, I've got it, you can have it. Maybe not permanently, but I'll lend it to you. Because we're all part of the same thing. Where we overflow with the blessing of God. Enjoy one another. Encourage one another. And let that overflow to the community around. Here's another little thing that I picked up once. If this is not a place where tears understood, where do I go to cry? If this is not a place where my spirit can take wing, where do I go to fly? If this is not a place where my questions can be asked, where do I go to seek? If this is not a place where my feelings can be heard, where do I go to speak? If this is not a place where you'll accept me as I am, where can I go to be? If this is not a place where I can try to learn and grow, where can I just be me? I didn't pick that up in a church. I picked it up in a primary school, written on the board as you walk in the door. And I thought, that you could be putting on a church notice board, couldn't you? This is the place where you can be, my friends. Be yourself. 
and then let God transform you by the power of the Spirit so together we make a big difference in this community. God bless you.